Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that we can come into your presence, that we've been adopted as your children, and that we have a glorious future because of the work of the Son. I ask, Father God, that you would be with us this morning and help us. Teach us from your word, Father. Holy Spirit, stir us up to live every day for the kingdom of God. And I ask, Father God, that you would find us this morning thrilled to be in your presence, ready to glorify your name. And I ask, Father God, that as these words come forth, they would be from you and that all that we do this morning would please you and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to return, of course, to the study we've been in in Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter in the Bible. In today's passage, this is a hard one. This is the, this is the hardest section of this chapter. This is the most difficult, at least from the standpoint of preaching and and this could be, in these verses that we're going to look at, this could be like eight weeks. So we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to throw a lot of stuff together, but God's Word is so powerful and so good. Let's start this morning and think carefully of the words that God has given to us and what He has revealed. Beginning in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I'm going to stop there. We're going, to, we're going to split this right here because these are some of the things that are a little bit easier and then we're going to spend more time on the more difficult part of the passage. Paul speaks of our weakness. And this weakness is defined by two things. As believers, we do have two weaknesses. Our spiritual condition, the human condition of struggling with our sin nature. That's just basic. And the second one is our finite minds, also just basic. Our thinking remains influenced by our flesh and by the world system. So those are the two things that are our weaknesses. And because of those weaknesses, we don't always know what to pray. It, it isn't so much that we don't ever know, but we don't always know because we don't know fully and understand fully what God's will is. But God doesn't leave us here. He gets personally involved. The Holy Spirit searches our hearts perfectly. And the heart in this passage, it, it really means the center of human life. The center of human life. He knows every detail of our lives. As a matter of fact, I, I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit knows us better than we know us. He knows every detail. And there's some of those details that I wish he didn't know. He knows. The Holy Spirit is God. 
So he intimately also knows the will of God. And in that position of knowing us and knowing the will of God, he intercedes for the believer. Now we also know that Jesus intercedes for us. So this isn't just something that the Holy Spirit does. And there's, there's a great example of how this kind of godly intercession occurs. It's found in Luke twenty two thirty one. Jesus says, he's talking to Peter, Simon, Simon, that's another name that we know is associated with Peter. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, on the one hand, I look at that, that passage, I have prayed for you. Isn't that just incredibly awesome to have God himself, Jesus Christ, our Savior, say, I'm praying for you. That would be an absolute perfect prayer. And Jesus intercedes for Peter because he knows that Peter's going to deny him. But Jesus also knows his prayers are going to be answered and Peter will be restored and become a powerful witness of the gospel. That's incredible. Now, now Peter, or Paul in, in Romans 8, he talks about groanings. And, and there's a lot of people who have misunderstood the groanings part of verse 26. I really believe if you look at how that's put together and what is going on as it's associated with intercession, this is communication within the Trinity. How the Father and Son and Holy Spirit communicate with one another is considerably different than how we communicate. So the only way Paul can describe this is with groanings. Groanings that are too difficult for us to understand. God's ways are not our ways. It should be obvious, as believers, it should be obvious to us that the Holy Spirit's prayers are perfect for us. His prayers are specific prayers for us. Specific prayers that are based on the will of God. Now let's go on to the next, void, the next verse. This is a well-known verse but I wonder if we actually live this way. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. What a glorious promise. But it's also linked to this idea of, of, of the Holy Spirit interceding for us. It's also linked to the idea that we are His. This promise only works for believers. The Holy Spirit knows perfectly what needs to be accomplished and how we will benefit in every situation of life. He knows that perfectly. So no matter what occurs, God loves us and plans every detail to bring us closer to the reality of our complete glorification and eternal life with Jesus. That's the purpose, that we be glorified ultimately. Now, verse 28 does not say God's children are prevented from trials, struggles, and sufferings. It also doesn't say that if you make a really bad choice, you're not going to suffer the consequences. God will make even the most difficult situation a blessing. We may not understand that blessing 
in this life. Our Heavenly Father works in suffering, persecution, sinful failure, physical pain, lack, any situation. And He works these things to produce the ultimate victory. And that ultimate victory is our eternal glorification, being with Christ. There's a great example of of this intercession and this, this work and this being blessed in any situation. Think of Romans 28 and then think of Daniel. King Darius had banned prayer and worship. No one could worship anyone but the king. If you worshiped any other god, you could be put to death. Daniel didn't stop worshiping the one true God. He didn't quit praying to the one true God. And the result was he was thrown into the lion's den. And and the passage in Daniel 6 is Daniel speaking to the king. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. All things work together for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Daniel's a great example. The magnificent promise that we we like to hear about in Romans 8.28 is only for believers. That's why that, that last phrase is there, who are called according to his purpose. And that called according to his purpose moves us into where, where we're going to go next in this chapter, and it's difficult. And you'll see why. Let's go on. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This passage, these these two verses can be very difficult. Let's pause for a moment. Holy Spirit, I ask that you keep us open. When we see words that we, we tend to bristle at, Keep us open to the things that you have revealed to us. Keep us on track. Let us see the glory of what you've revealed. Amen. The problem is foreknowledge and predestination. We have to to do something with these two difficult concepts. And we need to accept predestination and foreknowledge by faith because we're never going to fully understand how this all, these, these two terms, this foreknowledge and predestination, how this works. We're not going to know in this life. In this passage, it begins with four, and that links us to verse 28. It links us to that believer's called according to his purpose. God knows the beginning and the end of everything. He's omniscient. His omniscient extends in what we would look at it as 
backwards and forwards, past and future. And whatever God purposes is going to happen. Now, in this passage, there are three vital truths, then, that apply to salvation. Foreknowledge, predestination, and justification. Now, as we go through this, I want you to remember that God is not constrained in any way with what we understand as time. He knows the past, the present, and the future equally. And sometimes I like to think of it as one single moment. He does not have any constraints. That's an important concept to help us grasp these, ta- these, these terms. Let's start with foreknowledge, because redemption, the plan of redemption, being saved, really begins with God's foreknowledge. Foreknowledge means God is initiating salvation. When, when foreknowledge and salvation come together, that means somebody started it. It is God. And I say that very emphatically because if salvation begins with people, where, where, did, a person's get their, where did a person get their faith when they're dead? How, how is a dead person able to do that? The Bible clearly teaches that before salvation, all people are dead. Spiritually dead. Enemies of God. Paul clearly teaches this. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the possessions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I like that passage because it states where we all were before we came to Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, same thing, very clear. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all your trespasses. 1 Corinthians 2.14, it talks about being blind to the things of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Because each person, every human being, is dead, God must initiate salvation. This is is the connection to foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is God planning to do something. He's got it under control. The Father's involved. And we see this even in what Jesus said in, in John 6, 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one comes unless the Father draws So one of the prayers that I have for those that I I care about deeply who don't know Christ is, Holy Spirit, Father, stir their hearts. Do that work. Please do that work in their hearts. God initiates salvation. As a matter of fact, He even provides 
faith to believe as a gift. We see that in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So both saved and both salvation and faith are a gift of God. God has to do a work. Foreknowledge is difficult when we talk about salvation. That seems to be the main place that believers and the church struggles with this concept of foreknowledge because then if we apply the same terminology, the same idea in other places in Scripture, one in particular, we kind of rejoice. And the one that I have always thought, this is really amazing, is Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God knew who you were before you were born. That's foreknowledge. So God has this this plan in motion, and he sets redemption in motion, drawing people to himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now let's go on to the second term, and this one really sets people off, stirs people up. It's related to foreknowledge, predestination, predestination. I want you to think carefully about predestination and this whole idea and and keep that in mind as we listen to a portion of the first sermon, the first Christian sermon delivered by Peter on the day of Pentecost. This is from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth... A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Foreknowledge, plan. Something was done before that ever happened. Jesus nailed on the cross by wicked men was a a predetermined plan of God. Not just foreknowledge, predetermined. That's what it says. It was predestined. It had to happen. Jesus also teaches this in John 6.37 and 30 through 39 all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me i will never cast out for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that i should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day all that the father gives will come to me God puts it in motion. He has a plan. It's going to happen. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, this is where people really start to, to, to struggle 
He chose us from the foundation of the world. He chose us to be saved. He predestined us to be his children. And some really struggle with that. And let's, let's think this through. We're not, we're not Christians because somehow in our deceased state, we make a saving choice for Christ. God, by His grace, mercy, and love, first did a work within our heart. That's His plan. You see that? Now, now all of this then also takes us to the third term, justification. Justification simply means a believer is made right with God. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Foreknowledge, predestination, and justification, they are all connected. And also connected then to justification is glorification. God has a purpose and a goal. In Romans 8, verse 30, glorified there, it, it appears in the Greek in the past tense, and, and the way that's formed in that sentence with the past tense, whom God justified means eternally secure. That's an event that happens and doesn't ever undo itself. It can't change. It isn't manipulated. It is done, finished. It always is there. Once you're justified, you are always justified. Now, well, I just threw a whole bunch of theology at you. And it's easy to throw up our hands and, and declare, I don't understand. I don't understand how this works. People must be held accountable for their sins. And people must be responsible for going to heaven. And we're taught that people have to make a choice. So how can God just simply choose? First of all, to, to settle that, God never sends anyone to hell. Does that surprise you? God never sends anyone to hell. People choose hell. People choose to deny Christ. Okay, Pastor, that still doesn't help me too much. This is still really hard for me to understand. So here's what we have scripturally. The Bible clearly teaches that people must make a choice. People need to make a choice for Christ. They need to repent and choose this day, it says. Choose this day who you will serve. Come to me. Make a choice. Each human must be responsible for their choices. 
But we also see this predestination, this foreknowledge of God. There seems to be a contradiction. There's foreknowledge and predestination and there's human responsibility. These are all taught by Scripture. How do we work this out? It's very easy in situations like this one where it's so clear the Bible teaches each one of these just to grasp one of them. But the Bible clearly teaches all three, so we've got to have a way of putting these all together. Sinners are told to believe, and if they don't believe, they'll perish. John 8, 21, So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you, you cannot come. If they don't believe, that's their fault, not God's. They're guilty, and they'll perish. Nowhere, understand this, nowhere does Scripture teach that God chooses unbelievers for condemnation. That's a heresy that's been produced centuries ago in the church, and it's wrong. The Bible nowhere teaches that God chooses a human being simply to go to hell. God does not do that. God does call. He predestines believers to salvation. But God nowhere, nowhere says he predestines unbelievers to hell. Simply because he predestines and chooses someone for salvation does not mean that he chooses someone to go to hell. People choose hell by denying Christ, by saying, I don't believe. A person goes to hell because they reject God and God's plan. Jesus, John 3.18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Unbelievers are condemned by their own belief. Unbelief. Unbelief. Not by God's predestination. Now, i got to confess to you that I don't understand how predestination, the will of God, the free will of man, all of those kinds of things that we talk about, God's sovereignty, God's predestination, His foreknowledge, I don't know how that works alongside of personal responsibility. I don't know. And I'm not alone. I spent some time this week and I went through one of my resources I can go through just hundreds of commentaries. No one else knows either, and if someone says they do know, they're trying to sell you something. No one's got this. Some of the most famous people that I go to on a regular basis that comment on the Bible, they will say the same thing. I don't know how this works, but I take it by faith. We don't understand it, but it does work, and I'm going to have faith in Jesus Christ that it does. So in our theology, as believers, our faith, our theology has to have space for both predestination and human responsibility. They both exist. They both have to be accepted by faith because the Holy Spirit authored this. So this is where we find it. 
It must work then. And it must work perfectly. And just because I don't understand it, doesn't mean that it isn't of God and that it doesn't work. Each human has a responsibility. I'm comforted, actually. The longer I am a believer and the more and more I teach the Word of God, I am comforted by mysteries like this. John 1.12, But to all who did receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. There are things in Word that I just accept. And when I accept them, there is a peace inside. This idea of, of God just choosing and we don't have to do anything, that's wrong too. Human responsibility is also a command. 1 John 3.23, and this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. It's a command to believe. But we've also seen that it's a fact of God choosing. We can either struggle with that or we can accept it. I'm perfectly okay with understanding, with not understanding what God has put in place. I rejoice in the doctrine of predestination. Some ask, well, doesn't that make evangelism unimportant? I, I've heard that many times. Well, because of predestination and God choosing, I don't have to share the gospel. I don't need to share with someone. God will take care of that because that's his choice. Malarkey. Wrong. Stop it. This actually, this idea of foreknowledge and predestination, if, 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 any, if you get any of this, that should drive you to the place where it fuels and motivates us to preach the gospel and share the truth with the lost. And there's a reason why I say that. Because in God's foreknowledge, His plan, His predestination, you have been saved. And you have been saved and you've been left here on this planet to be a part of God's work. You are a part of the kingdom of God. And there's an expectation that God has that you will be involved in the work. You're involved in the drawing. You're involved with the, the salvation. You're involved with the whole thing that's going on. I know this because that's what the Word says. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And the word preaching there, I know that's what I'm doing here. And we have a certain way we think of preaching. The word there simply means to proclaim. You can proclaim. Every one of you can proclaim. And how are they to preach? How are they to proclaim unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those 
who preach, who proclaim the good news. Oh, God, that our feet would be beautiful. That our feet would be beautiful. God determines the plan. He executes the plan. And in his plan, he includes us. And his plan never fails. This is glorious. Go share the gospel. And let your feet be beautiful. And I have only barely scratched the surface of this passage. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the plan. Before you threw the stars into the heavens, before you spoke creation into existence, before there was even a concept of time, you knew who we were, that we would be yours, your children, sons and daughters, adopted into your kingdom, into your family. And before any of those great things that we associate with creation occurred, you had a plan. And that plan was for men and women to receive justification, receive righteousness from you. Oh, Father, how glorious. And all of this so that you would be magnified and glorified for all eternity. Thank you for your predestination. Thank you for your foreknowledge. Thank you for your justification. Thank you for your sovereignty. In Christ's name, amen.